Hello and welcome to the show. Sorry about a little bit of uh, technical difficulties to launch there. We had a bit of a false start, but uh, I think everything's functioning the way it should be now. Uh, and I am pleased to host my guest for the evening, the man at the center of probably the most insane outbreak of college campus lunacy I have ever seen. Uh, now former Evergreen State College biology professor, Brett Weinstein. Brett, thank you for making the time for my channel tonight. Thanks for having me. So uh, first things first, I am fascinated by your story. I've covered it at length. One mystery remains to me. Do you prefer Weinstein or Weinstein? I need this settled once and for all. You're not the first person to ask. It is definitely okay, Weinstein. There good. are many Weinsteins in the world, but, but my family is Weinstein. Okay. Cause that's what I've gone with on a hunch, but, uh, but now I have it confirmed, so I don't have to go back and correct anything. That's great. Uh, so to give the audience an idea of how this is going to work tonight, uh, I will assume that everybody's basically familiar with the facts of the spring. If you're not, I've done a series of videos on them. They're all linked in the description. You can go check those out, catch up. Uh, with our time today, I want to focus at least at the start on what is the big news currently, which is, uh, Brett, your settlement, the settlement of your pending lawsuit or a forthcoming lawsuit uh, against the college uh, and, and your as part of that deal, your resignation from the school, uh, from your professorship. So uh, we'll talk about that and, and some of the lingering issues uh, in this story for about 45 minutes. Then I'll take some audience questions uh, via the super chat in the last 15 minutes. I won't be able to get to everybody, but I will uh, take the ones that I can and we'll move as quickly as possible. So thanks everybody uh, for your patience. But, um, but Brett, I figured we'd start with the headliner on this settlement. Can you explain uh, what's happened with the settlement, like how the lawsuit came to be, why you decided to settle uh, instead of pursuing this this matter further legally? Uh, I know that's kind of a big question, a lot to answer, but no, I, how do you like? I'm, I'm actually, I'm glad to discuss it because I've seen a, a lot of discussion and traffic and a certain number of people were disappointed that my wife and I didn't uh, continue with the lawsuit. Um, the the situation actually ended up quite straightforward from our perspective. Certainly would have been uh, our preference to go back to the college and fight the battle uh, on the front lines and continue with the lawsuit, which I know would have been many people's preference in light of the outrageous stuff that they saw on your channel and elsewhere that was taking place at Evergreen. Um, but the, the nature of the legal environment in the state of Washington actually um, did not uh, did not give us a path forward that would have allowed to do, us to do that. So let me tell you a little bit about what did happen. We, uh, we filed a, uh, a tort claim, which one has to file and give uh, a state agency 60 days to respond to the tort claim before you can file a lawsuit. So we filed our tort claim, which essentially spelled out the obviously hostile work environment that we had been exposed to and gave the, the college time to respond. We did that um, towards the beginning of the summer, and the college refused to sit down with us and our lawyers until the very end of the summer. Okay. So as school, okay. wow. about I, to I, I was sort of wondering how that happened because it, it seems like, uh, I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but, but based on what I've heard you describe and the little bit that you've talked about it, it seems like this was not a, a very nice exchange between you and the school in terms of trying to settle this. And apparently there wasn't an exchange at all, if I'm understanding correctly. 
Well, you have to understand, um, there is a divide inside of the college that is not as obvious as it might be. Hmm. You have correctly focused on President Bridges. President Bridges is new to the college. He's been there for two years. And um, I became uh, a sharp thorn in his side. And so I think he was not particularly eager that is my phone. Um, he was not particularly eager to see me come back. There are others uh, in the deanery, for example, who were aware, you know, the deanery was focused on um, advancing the curriculum of the college and losing me and my wife was going to be painful from the point of view of dealing with students who um, would have had a place to go that needed somewhere new to go and that sort of thing. Mm. But in any case, I, I got the sense that what happened was the top of the administration was essentially trying to uh, disrupt any attempt to reconcile with us because it wanted us gone. And so it, because the, the president had more power, uh, that's in effect what ended up happening. Okay. So I find that very interesting when you say that they wanted you gone, because that seems pretty evident to me. And I'm trying to understand the college's perspective. Because on the one hand, I could understand a perspective where they say, this was a disaster. We just want to move on and start from a clean slate here, rightly or wrongly. You know, maybe Brett doesn't fit into that picture, but it does seem to me that there's been unique pressure applied to you and your wife. I, I haven't seen or haven't seen any evidence of pressure applied to other professors who certainly contributed to this conflict and i'm not i'm certainly not asking you to throw former colleagues of yours under the bus but uh i guess what i'm looking for is comments on on how much you think that pressure was unique to you and your wife as opposed to other people who were involved in what happened at the school yeah it's an excellent question um i mean it first of all you, you should understand that the mind tries to make sense of a story based on what it sees and in this case the story contained all of the elements that you saw. And so there is a story that you can make out of them. And I think you've done as good a job as anybody of figuring out what that story meant. But then there's also the hidden story. And the hidden story in this case is that Dr. Bridges, for whatever reason, wanted to completely remake the college in a way that the faculty would not have tolerated if he had advanced it transparently. And so mm -hmm. the equity madness um, arose because he used it to cloak a plan to change the way Evergreen functioned. And I've been at Evergreen for 14 years. The unique aspects of the college have allowed me to teach in a way that was tremendously rewarding and very, very useful for reaching students who are not um, well suited to a normal school environment, but who have very high intellectual potential. Mm -hmm. And so I was alarmed to see this model uh, upended. And because of the, the way I am, I stood up and objected as things were advanced. And that put me in the sights of this ironically named equity movement. And so they went after me and Bridges uh, saw me as an obstacle to what he wanted to accomplish. And so effectively what's happened is he's um, by getting rid of me and my wife, he has restored an environment in which there will not be effective resistance to what he wants to do. Which is 
is interesting to hear you hear or to hear you say because when I look at George Bridges as an outsider, and I think a lot of people do, I see a guy who is not willing to stand up to for just plain common sense, not willing to stand up to people who are being bullies on campus. And what you're describing is more of a guy with an agenda, uh, actually taking somewhat of a leadership role almost in a very bizarre way, if you want to characterize that way. I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't know that I've ever seen someone pursue a specific goal in that way he's he, basically he's allowing other people to do the dirty work is what you're saying is, is that a uh, he's using, he's using other people and they're not fully under his control and they certainly okay. treated him uh terribly which you know it's hard for me to be upset about um because you know <laughs> he's in the process of wrecking a college i i cared a lot about but of course uh, but let me say this, you're not the only person who's had trouble imagining that somebody who has um, behaved as cluelessly as he has on film is actually being strategic. And hmm. it is both. I mean, he is being strategic and he's, um, he's not terrible at it. He is actually getting what he wanted structurally. He's just looking like a fool in the process. And okay. Um, you know, and the college is hemorrhaging and my guess is it will now fail, but, um, okay. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. I'll, I'll save that for a minute. Cause I, I'm interested in your, um, I don't know here, what you view as the future of Evergreen. Let's put it that way. If there is a future, maybe there yeah. isn't one at all. One thing I, uh, am curious about while I'm thinking about it, because I, I listened to you speak about this a little bit with Dave Rubin and Steve Simpson at Harvard, uh, which is great, uh, great, uh, uh, event you guys hosted people can check that out on dave's channel but one thing you mentioned was that the college in your opinion feared the this going forward legally this lawsuit going forward legally because of the process of discovery and you mentioned the emails that existed internally those have at least somewhat come out through a public records request but if i'm understanding you correctly you are of the belief that there's much more damning pieces of evidence than just email exchanges that there's additional things that probably would have worked to your benefit in a law in the lawsuit. I don't know if you're at liberty to um, offer some insight on what oh, those sure. might be. No, but I, I am I'm, curious. Uh, I mean, this is this is the irony of the whole thing. And at some point, we do have to get back to the uh, the somewhat drier details of the settlement and why we chose to. Yeah, yeah. Whenever. Go but for it. Um, let's put it this way. There are uh, there are two aspects to the case. Um, mm -hmm. One aspect has to do with the um, the, the legal theory under which the case would be advanced. And the fact is, it was a slam dunk, not just under some legal theory, but there were, we had our choice of different ways that we could sue the college because it had violated different kinds of, uh, of laws. You know, we could have sued in federal court, um, if need be under a, a civil rights statute, we could have sued in state court. The problem was all of these things ran into uh, the same hitch. And the hitch is that the state of Washington does not have a does not have punitive damages, which means that the only damages you can sue for are what are called compensatory damages, um, which means how were you actually harmed? Well, on the one hand, that seems pretty straightforward too, because my wife and I were both mid-career, so we had maybe 15 years left to teach at the college. And if you add up the salary that we would have earned over 
that period of time, the hostile work environment that made it so we couldn't return, you know, would have been worth close to four million bucks before you ever get to the pain and suffering of being challenged by a mob that went on to wield bats and that sort of thing. Yeah. However, we were told that um, courts do not understand the academic uh, job market. And that in effect, if we were, let's say, if I was a nurse at a hospital rather than a professor, and I was driven out of a hospital uh, by a bad administration that created a hostile work environment, I wouldn't be likely to recover damages for the rest of my career because the assumption would be you can just get a job at another hospital. Mm -hmm. Not how it works in academia. You know, um, Evergreen is a college that f focuses on teaching. And so my wife and I, although we have a, uh, a rich research life, have not been publishing research. We've been focused on okay. teaching for 15 years, which means that if we were to go and try to get hired by another school, we don't look viable as applicants coming in mid-career, not having been publishing. So we were effectively driven out of careers that were going to sustain us for you know another 15 or 20 years sure so anyway in in real terms the damages did come close to four million dollars mm -hmm. um, but the chances of convincing a court of that were not uh, not high we were told that a court would be very unlikely to understand that nuance and so we were taking a huge risk by going forward on the theory that uh, um, that a court would award the uh, compensatory damages for our entire the, the rest of our careers. Mm -hmm. um, so what that left us with was um, a situation in which we were choosing between three options. One option was, in spite of the retaliatory hostile work environment, we could have gone back and taught, and we could have continued with the lawsuit. That would have been our preference. That's actually what I was expecting was going to happen. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is if you go back, even though obviously to anybody who looks at the videos, it was a hostile work environment. And if you look at the emails, it was a retaliatory work environment. Mm -hmm. You go back, you undercut the claim that the environment is too hostile to go back to. And so um, from the point of view of convincing a court, uh, again, we're left with a case that was extremely strong with respect to the evidence of wrongdoing. And yes, discovery um, would have revealed a great many things, many of which we know about because, for example, um, depositions, uh, we, you know, we're friendly with people in the college. We know what would have been said in these depositions. And so the mm -hmm. case was going to become much stronger. And then there's also documents that are not uh, accessible through public records request. There was a lot to be to be gained through that process. But what was not going to change was the fact that in the state of Washington, you're limited to compensatory damages and that um, the compensatory damages would have been uh, a small fraction of the actual loss of the rest of our careers. Mm -hmm. So um, that in that situation would have been very different in most states. I think Washington is one of either 10 or 11 states that don't have punitive damages. Um, but having uh, the bad luck of finding ourselves in the situation in the state of Washington, there was no um, there was no good path forward. Either we okay. have walked away from our jobs and continued with the lawsuit, in which case we would have had an immediate financial crisis for our families. Mm -hmm. For our family, we could have gone back and then fought 
probably for another two to five years in the lawsuit uh, while at our jobs, but having undercut our claim to having um, been damaged. Hold on one second. Um, <clears throat> and what was the third option? The third option would be, let's see, um, there was go back and fight, there was leave and fight, and there was settle, which is the one that we took. And mm -hmm. so in this case, settling um, solved our uh, financial problem temporarily. We still have to figure out what to do from here, but we have a period of time in which to uh, to reorient. Um, but in any case, the the long and short of it is the case was very strong. The damages were not as strong because we happen to be in the state of Washington. And in light of the way the college responded to us in negotiations, settling was really the only viable option. They wanted us out and uh, uh, we got paid pretty well, as my wife put it, to leave a burning build. You, you read my mind because that was the quote that I wanted to say next. And that transitions into... I'm just curious about your thoughts about the future of Evergreen. I, we know, so some news out uh, today, they've or, or this week, they've uh, punished 80 students to varying degrees that were involved with the spring and summer's antics. And they've also released some sort of uh, free speech guide that is going to guide campus's values going forward. If, if you're listening to this later, that's prompting a smirk. So I can kind of tell you might not buy that. Um, but I'm, and, and of course, um, uh, the, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Anyway, I, I guess the, the smirk threw me off. Comment on, comment on the, uh, yeah, uh, comment on the, uh, on the future of Evergreen and, sure. um, and whether you, whether you believe them that they've seen the light on some of these things. What I was going to also mention was that obviously we've seen enrollment drop uh, this for for this uh, fall by about 5%. And then there's a budget shortfall of $2.1 million, something to that effect. Yeah. So is Evergreen, is the metaphor accurate? Is Evergreen genuinely a burning building or do you think there's hope? Well, you can sort of choose metaphors. Burning building is good. A Titanic is good. There are a lot of things <laughs> you could use. Um, yeah. Has Evergreen seen the light? Well, it has seen the light in the way that you see the light when you turn on your headlamp, but it's facing you. You know what I'm saying? You blind yourself. Um, okay. Yeah. No, it hasn't seen any useful light. And okay. Quite the opposite. It is sure. hurtling down the very same road that it was on, and uh, it's picked up speed. Um, I don't know if you caught today, but the college fix uh, got hold of an email, which I, I had actually seen uh, yesterday. Uh, a professor quit and um, pointed out that the closing down of the email uh, listserv that faculty use um, effectively places the college administration in a better position to basically uh, hand down uh, authoritarian edicts without challenge, which was mm -hmm. the problem that caused the mess in the first place. Um, but let's let's just uh, let's be systematic about it. They've they've punished eighty protesters. That came out of nowhere. I have to say, we were in negotiations with these people, and they told us in no uncertain terms that um, effectively nothing was wrong. 
Therefore, to discover weeks later that they're punishing people for what they claim wasn't the problem seems absurd. And you wonder, uh, I'm a fan of due process. That's, uh, that's quite a long process, let's put it that way, to figure out, um, to figure out that, I don't know, how long has it been? Since May? We're going on, yeah. we're, we're going on you know, four months. Four months. Past four months. Uh, maybe some of these cases are a little bit gray, but there were plenty of black and white cases of right and wrong to be adjudicated here i would say well i must say when uh um so i shouldn't just keep referring to her as my wife my wife is heather hying she's another biologist mm -hmm. um, uh actually if you look on rate my professor which is the public um site on which professor evaluations are viewable she's she was evergreen's top professor at the point that we were driven out yeah um, but in any case uh uh you know when she heard that 80 pro protesters had been punished, you know, she looked at me and she said, well, wait, which ones? Because, you know, what we've been hearing all summer is that the protester um, who, you know, I, I reminded myself of one of your videos in which you showed the mob of bat-wielding uh, students, um, the protester who led the bat-wielding Yes. Tumblr Negan, I called him, but I, <laughs> I'm not going to force you to uh, use the nicknames. No, I, I think I should st stay away from the nicknames. I figured as such, yeah. Um, but in any case, that student was also on video quite proudly arranging what amounts to the kidnapping of the administration. Yeah. You know, blockading them in their office, uh, keeping George from peeing when he needed to. That guy was placed by the administration on the committee that was revising the student code of conduct <laughs> over the summer. <laughs> so a free bat with every admission, apparently, is how that's going to go. Yes. I mean, at least yeah. just for optics, they should give you a ball, too. But yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but but anyway, so all summer we've been watching them signal that nothing was wrong and they've been rewarding people for kidnapping and bat wielding and stuff like that. So I don't know who they punished. And frankly, if you read carefully what they say about the punishment, they basically give you a range of things that happened to people. Yeah. And that range includes like, um, you know, being talked to in a stern voice kind of stuff. So, you know, it yeah. may be that 80 people, uh, you know, got sat down and, um, you know, had eyebrows raised at them or something like that. But I we, think we they did know. mention some suspensions. I, I, but you know, again, we don't know how many or some. There, it looks like the, they claim there were cases of discipline, uh, including probation and suspension. But you know, that might be. We don't know how long. We don't know how many. So who knows right. what we're dealing with there? I think a couple of students were a couple of the. Um, ringleaders for the lack of a better term, I think left the college were effectively told hmm. that they needed to leave the college or they would face okay. something serious. I don't know that for sure. But um, but in any case, I guess my question though would be uh, if, the, if the person wielding the bats and um, blockading the administration in the admin building is on the um, committee revising the student code of conduct, they can't be very serious about punishing people for having done wrong. So yeah. I don't know what they did. They punished other people and they didn't punish him. That seems like it's incoherent. 
or they punished him while asking him to help revise the student code of conduct. I can't imagine a coherent way to resolve all of the puzzle that we can I, see. I don't think evergreen and coherence are uh, much of a pair together. I don't think that those things match to, not because, I, don't, I know it might pain you, I, I guess I should clarify. In my experience, my skewed perspective on evergreen, because that's well, one thing that I want to talk about too, um, because the, the, the sad tragedy in this is of course for you evergreen is an institution that you love and it's a place you've been for a decade and a half and you don't want to see it i don't have an emotional attachment to the school but if it was my alma mater if it was my employer i would i would be enraged to see it taken over in such a way and i feel so uh poor i feel so bad for just your average biology student at Evergreen, the kid who just wants to go to class and study hard and take advantage of the opportunity in front of him. And a lot of the questions that I've had from people emailing me, I got one in super chat from um, from Austin, um, which is just what what would you tell? Well, his question was a little more specific. Uh, what's the best way to approach Marxist SJW professors who hate me as a straight white male veteran? Um, <laughs> guys, obviously. Yes. But um but I guess my question would be, what what advice would you give those kids, whether they're specifically in your former classes at Evergreen or just across the country, where they just want to take take a sincere approach to their education to take advantage of the opportunity before them? Is it best to fight it in the way that you have? Or is it best to say, well, I guess this is the way the system's going to be. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to get through this and I'm going to move on. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question. Um, and I should say... Uh... Heather and I have a huge number of students, former and still current students at the college that we're in contact with. So we're having these discussions all the time. Um, this, is, this is not an easy problem for an individual to deal with. I mean, uh, you, can, you can look at, at my case and it gives you a pretty good sense of where we actually are. Because, yeah. you know, I, the evidence is pretty clear. I was in the right. I was facing people who were not only um, advancing uh, a racist agenda um, on a college, a state college campus, using official channels to do it and in violation of the law, um, but they were foolish enough to do it on videotape and to post it on YouTube and all of this stuff. That That's a pretty um, powerful uh, set of weapons that I had but it wasn't sufficient mm -hmm. somehow one of the things that was i think most bewildering about this whole experience is that when we did finally get to um legal structures and we began to interact with the attorney general's office um, for example it actually became clear that the madness that we saw inside evergreen was also invading the board of trustees of the college, the attorney general's office itself. Um, we then had to think, what well, what is the likelihood of getting a jury in which this madness does not play a significant role? Yeah. So I think my advice, and I don't like hearing myself give this advice because in general, my feeling is we need people to stand up, to be courageous, to say what's right. And, you know, there are costs that go along with that, but that the system doesn't work unless people do that. Um, on the other hand, I'm loath to tell somebody who's going into debt in order to get an education, stand up and it'll be fine because it may well not be fine. 
Um, this is a very dangerous environment. And um, although, you know, the way it went down at Evergreen uh, is pretty amusing if you're at a distance, I would imagine. But the implications for the rest of the academy and frankly, for civilization, given that civilization depends on the academy in order to figure out what's true and what we should do about it, the implications are really serious. So at some level, I would say uh, a student has to figure out what environment they're in and they have to figure out how to balance um, what's right with uh, not destroying their capacity to go to school and leaving themselves with tremendous debt. I yeah. just advise somebody to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and I, it pains me to hear you say that too, you know, I mean, to, to, as someone who very much values my college education, the idea of, of giving someone that advice, like, well, you might think twice. And if you do go, you know, you might want to preserve or, or work for self-interest, you know, and, and keep your head down and get through as opposed to, as opposed to fighting the system. It's a, uh, uh, <laughs> it's just a bummer to hear it. Uh, I can't, I, I, I'm kind of baffled that we've reached this point because that's never before have I, have I thought that, that, that this was the purpose of a college education. You know, was the, the purpose was to go and to exchange ideas freely and, and any thought in it uh, was, was acceptable in an open forum and we'd find the good ideas by having them compete. And now it's just an indoctrination camp in which you conform or you will be punished. Well, that's supposed um, to go into debt for that, as you said. Um, so the indoctrination camp, um, the indoctrination camp has now become a coup against the part of the academy that wasn't afflicted in this way. And mm -hmm. this, you know, to the extent that something caught us off guard, it was this. Postmodernism is not new. My wife and I dealt with it when we were in college. We had our first run-in with postmodernism, which at the time had taken over cultural anthropology. <clears throat> but uh, more or less, for the entirety of our teaching careers, we were able to steer clear of uh, the part of the college that was apparently afflicted with this, you know, this bad ideology. This yeah this incoherent ideology. And what happened is after George empowered it in order to get his agenda accomplished, it started targeting scientists um, and even science students. Yeah. So, and there's a story that uh, in light of your last question, I, I think you should hear. Which sure. is, it's a little bit delicate. It, it, um, it's about a student uh, who my wife and I are still close with and Anyway, I don't want to create trouble for her, but yeah, um, student of ours who had been in several programs that we had taught um, and had gone with us to Ecuador on a study abroad program, 11 week study abroad in Ecuador that we had 30 students and traveled all around the country to all these different habitats. So mm -hmm. this is somebody we knew um, quite well. She happens, she's mixed race. Uh, mm -hmm. Half her family is black, half her family is white. During the riots, uh, she was walking to the laboratory buildings. I don't know exactly why, but she's a science student and she was walking to the laboratory buildings. And she was actually confronted by a mob of protesters that chastised her for um, effectively being a race traitor, for studying oh, science God. as a person of color. 
Oh, wow. That was the basis. Oh, yeah. It was just for being a science student. Well, the science students are science students and science faculty are wrongly understood to be racist. Right. So this is actually a great transition piece, too, because one of the things that I've heard you speaking about, I think Jordan Peterson has spoken about this. Your wife had an excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that I think uh, everyone should read because I thought it was great. If I'd like to read just a little bit from it, if if you're cool with that. Great. And then I'd like you to speak about this this collision course that you kind of describe between biology or STEM fields generally and the postmodernist or the, the social justice worldview, however you want to characterize it. But what she wrote, and I think this is just really well written, what may not be obvious from outside academia is uh, that this revolution is an attack on enlightenment values, reason, inquiry, and dissent. Extremists on the left are going after science. Why? Because science seeks truth, and the truth isn't always convenient. Uh, the attack on STEM is no accident. So if you can explain this theory a little bit more, why, it, why are these two theories in competition? And uh, if you want to put on your prediction hat again, uh, who's going to win in this epic battle if there is a showdown? Yeah, actually, I think that last part's pretty easy. Um, first part, <laughs> oh, you're feeling good, are you? You're feeling optimistic. Well, I mean, the thing is, I think it's just so clear. If you play through the step-by-step, we yeah. keep going down this road. I think it's pretty clear what happens. Um, so let's let's start with the first part, though, which is harder, which is why are these two uh, worldviews in conflict? Mm -hmm. So the two worldviews proceed from different assumptions. The scientific worldview assumes that we can observe the world and that we can understand how it works um, based on basically the scientific method. The postmodern worldview notices that um, perception is not objective and that it is impossible to bypass it as you engage the world. And therefore, it wrongly concludes that whatever you might come up with through your scientific method, having been filtered through a biased apparatus, is therefore just some narrative that you're pushing and it's really no better than any other narrative. Um, so that's nonsense, but you can imagine that you can't um, reconcile it with the scientific worldview. So mostly what's happened is these two worldviews have been kept away from each other, right? So one of the things that was true in these protests is that the student protesters were not students that my wife and I knew. Mm. They just hadn't interacted with us, and they surprised us and our students who also were not interacting with them. So we didn't really understand the degree to which we were in separate worlds inside the same college, but that was in fact what was going on. So why is the um, postmodern worldview coming after the scientific worldview? Well, the postmodern worldview effectively can't survive if it is forced to compete with a scientific worldview because a scientific worldview provides power, right? It provides an understanding of things and it provides, most importantly, an ability to say, this idea is correct and this one is false. In a world where you're pushing a false idea, you don't want something empowered to make that claim that that thing happens to be incorrect. Well, yeah, it, it, it depends on how you demonstrate truth and falsehood too. I think one of the things, I forget if it was in her op-ed or, or maybe it was something related I read, but it's kind of 
this uh, this value of personal experience as evidence over data, you know, over over uh, anecdote has somehow become more valuable than data, I suppose, in these competing worldviews. I don't know no. if that's a fair way to characterize it, but you're being too cautious. Okay, you're being too cautious. You're actually you're expressing uh, something that might have been accurate 20 years ago, but the current mm -hmm. version of this. So the the buzzword is lived experience. Right. And the idea is your hypothesis can't possibly compete with somebody's actual lived experience. So let's take something like racism. Let's say that you are black and you experience racism. Well, okay, that's a real thing. And is it possible that somebody looking at a pile of data is going to understand what you understand about racism in the same way that you do? No. But the problem is, let's say that you're black and you're walking down the street and somebody looks at you in a way that's hostile, right? And you think, well, I know what that was about, right? And then let's say that they pass you and they look at the next person with the same hostile look and that person isn't black. You don't know that, right? So the point is we all have the experience of connecting things that may or may not actually be connected, right? We don't know whether or not somebody has treated us badly because of one factor or another. It may be that we have a good guess, mm -hmm. but, um, but you can't tell. And the tool that does allow you to tell happens to be science, where basically we can test hypotheses over a population and we can say, is there a bias in this over this population? So it's exactly the tool that you want in order to separate the noisiness of experience from the signal of something like, like racism. So mm -hmm. by prioritizing um, lived experience, there's a way of just simply disarming any sort of apparatus that would evaluate this in a in a dispassionate, um, objective way. But mm -hmm. worse than that, what, what we saw at Evergreen and that I have now come to understand is broadly distributed is the idea that the very act of questioning lived experience is the thing in question. So, um, if we ask questions about somebody's experience, their lived experience of racism, that is racism, right? Right. Yeah. Anything but simply accepting it is, uh, is is the bad pattern. And so in an environment where your lived experience is the only thing there is and nobody is allowed to ask you to to defend it, then the point is, well, of course, bad actors are going to abuse that, right? As soon as you set up a system in which you can make a claim and nobody can challenge it, well, of course, anybody who wants to get ahead is going to utilize it. Yeah. And it seems to me there's no way to resolve competing claims in that system either. Like if, if two experiences are at odds with each other, I suppose, I don't know. I don't know how they would resolve that. It, it doesn't, maybe you have some insight on that. I mean, unfortunately I do because I've okay. seen it. So, you know, my wife and I had many students of color mm -hmm. and we heard various different things from them. Some of them mm -hmm. did, talk about experiences that they had at the college that they felt were um, the result of racism. Other students of color told us that they did not have that experience, that mm -hmm. that simply was not what they experienced as members of the college. As you point out, those are two valid pieces of data in the same story. What is racism like at Evergreen? Well, even if lived experience is what we're going to 
go on, we at least have several different lived experiences that tell a different story. And they at least say it's not some ubiquitous force that's everywhere and um, unavoidable and everybody can see it. But the voices that spoke up were the ones that said there's racism everywhere. And the other voices were too scared and understandably so to say, actually, that hasn't been my experience because of what would have come back mm -hmm. if they did. Well, we're, we're getting a little bit tight on time. So I have two more questions for you and then we can hop into some audience questions if you're comfortable with that. Sure. One, one question I have that I can pitch as a softball or a little bit more as a fastball. So I will start with a softball. You're welcome uh, to pitch the fastball. Okay. Well, I, I wanted to address some of the criticism that people have had for you or against you, I suppose, um, because I've seen it a lot. People saying uh, Brett Weinstein is to some degree uh, responsible for what happened at Evergreen. He was uh, he helped to create this monster, and now he's complaining that the monster has, you know, grown up to eat him. Basically, uh, how do you respond to that? To what degree do you consider yourself responsible for what happened at Evergreen? Uh, to zero degree. Okay. Um, and you know, I'm really glad you asked that question. I, of course, have seen that criticism written many places. It's somehow it's it's a natural assumption that people have, and I think. Um, you know, this story has played out in a very funny way because people who are maybe right of center see a validation of their worldview in what happened at Evergreen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it does say that some of the things that the right suspected about the left were true. Um, but I think there's a, a temptation to, uh, to overfit the pattern, which is to say, well, if I was right about that, then I was right about everything. And therefore, the entire left was crazy all along. And what I would say is, my wife and I have been teaching critical thinking um, for combined almost 30 years at the college. We cultivated an atmosphere in our classes, and you should understand our classes were called programs. They were full-time for professors and students. So these were tight-knit communities of people who knew each other very well. And they were built around um, challenging each other. We encouraged our students to challenge us and we challenged them back and we created, I mean, I hate to use a term like safe space because it wasn't a safe space in the sense of there are things that won't be said here. It was exactly the opposite kind of space. It was a space yeah. where you're safe to advance any perspective that's valid. Yeah. You know, and to be wrong. and to Or even invalid. Wrong. Like, honestly, in, in the, the thing I loved about my classes was I would go to class, professors and students would say, frankly, wildly outlandish things for the purpose of exploring ideas. Now, sometimes they were just purely for the purpose of exploring. They're not a sincerely held opinion or belief. It's just, let's throw this out there and consider it. And it was sort of understood that that's a space in which you don't take what the person said there and then present it elsewhere as though they're sincerely advocating it or as though it's a sincerely held belief. So it's interesting the way you characterized it. Because it was a safe space, but not the way not the way that we think of it. It was a say whatever you want and you won't be judged for it. It was safe of. enough to take real risk. Yeah. So um, I, I think I think this is this is so important. I couldn't really I mean, you know. I couldn't really be prouder of what my wife and I did in the classroom. Sometimes we taught together, incidentally. Sometimes we taught with other people. Sometimes we taught alone. But. Mm -hmm we were very good at creating community in which um, very diverse populations of students interacted at a super high level. And hmm. um, you should see the 
communications that we are getting from students that we have known, many of which we haven't spoken to or had contact with in 13, 14 years. People are contacting us from that entire range, talking about what experiences they have had after leaving our classes and how it left an impression. So my feeling is I get why people want to connect the dots and say, you created this and now it's come to get you and you're whining about it. And the answer is actually not. My wife and I fought postmodernism in 1992 when we were undergraduates at UCSC. We have continued to be um, unapologetic advocates for enlightenment values, for uh, honorable disagreement. And this thing came to get us from some other part of the academy that we weren't part of. And if there's anything you can say, it's that maybe we should have been more aware of what was going on in other people's classrooms, but our students did not come down with this mental disorder. Um, mm. This was this was other students. Okay. And then my last question for you: I have been informed that you are soon going to be offering a four-part online crash course on evolutionary thinking, and I'm told that that is open to early registration. I've put the link in the description. But if people want to check that out, what can they expect from it? And, and what, what's this class about? It's a good question. I, I don't want to overrepresent it because okay. it's really a, it's a, it's a precursor to something that will unfold uh, given more space and time, but it's going to be essentially uh, four documents that are going to help orient somebody who wants to understand how to think about a human being as an evolutionary uh, product how to think about what you are, what experience you have, and what it means in an evolutionary context. That may all sound kind of dry or abstract, but one of the things that Heather and I have seen over the course of, of teaching at Evergreen is how little people realize that almost everything they care about is um, in one way or another amenable to an evolutionary analysis that is liberating and insightful and interesting. And so anyway, uh, in four documents, I'm going to give you the introduction to how to think about human beings and what they do um, in an evolutionary context. And then later on, we will go into deeper depth in some other, some other format. Okay, great. So that's uh, brettweinstein.net slash early. If people are looking for that, you can sign up there. And, uh, and you can get in on that. So uh, I'm going to open up Super Chat now, guys. So if you want to get your questions in, we'll return to them in just a second. So if you've got questions for Brett, be happy to uh, read them for you. And uh, I did get a few questions via email that I'll read uh, in the interim here. I got a, uh, definitely a repeat questions on your politics, your personal politics. Um, so just a couple here that are pretty representative. Facepalm says, I'd be interested uh, if there was a defining moment when Brett realized that his classical liberal views and the neoliberal or left views were not compatible. If so, was this awakening sudden, uh, sudden or begrudged and dragged out? And then I got a question from, uh, or dragged out. I got a question from Bo. Uh, ask him if the experience has changed any of his views politically, uh, if at all. And, uh, and then the last question, who he respects most on the right. So general questions about your political alignment and then who you view on the right that you, you like the most. Yeah, uh, those are good questions. 
I should say I've been, um, I did have a kind of awakening. I think, you know, it's come in stages over my whole adult life, but I think the one that people are looking for, I had an awakening. I was part of the Occupy movement and mm. um, I was troubled by what I heard on the inside of the Occupy movement. It was incoherent. And I think it was motivated by something completely comprehensible and, um, you know, some of the same stuff that motivated the Tea Party, a sort of rejection of a corrupt um, governmental apparatus. Um, but the response didn't make any sense. And mm. I think it it broke the last uh, vestige of hope that I had that reform was going to right the ship of state and put us on the right course. I think I realized that there's something more more fundamentally wrong than uh, than people were focused on. And I've been on a kind of quest to figure out what it is and what to do about it. And I've found interesting people, uh, very eclectic folks to um, team up on thinking about uh, the political structures of the world and the way civilization functions in a different way. So what I think is strange to people, and I think you, you can kind of hear that there's a paradox people are trying to solve when they, you know, people who are paying attention to me all of a sudden can't make sense of the fact that I come from an ideology that they've dismissed and I don't seem crazy, right? So... Um, <laughs> I, so, I came from that place too until they all beat me up and so they beat me into submission basically and I've kind of shifted a little bit but they haven't oh, got to you you are you're standing up so wait a second you uh you came from the left and you've oh yeah oh yeah I, yeah I was a two-time Obama voter and um and this the first time I ever voted Republican was this this last election mm. uh, and I still am a mixed voting guy I voted for our Democratic governor here in Montana uh, I tend to vote uh, I would be at home with the libertarians now, I think, if they could get their act together and it wasn't guys like Gary Johnson getting the yeah. nomination. <laughs> but yeah, I've uh, I've I've been on somewhat of a the I guess the political trajectory that people might be assigning you, but I don't think you uh, accept as your trajectory. Maybe yeah. but I don't want to mischaracterize you. Well, first of all, let me say I'm a one time Obama voter. I okay. voted for him the first time. I could not vote for him a second time. Hmm. Um, I was so troubled by what unfolded after his first election that um, I just couldn't do it. But in any case, here, here's what you're looking for. Um, I, am, I am more or less convinced that all of the policy that's being advocated on both left and right is, uh, it's a low peak. It's a, it's a low peak and we need to find a higher peak where things work better. So what I've found is that I have a very easy time with, have you taken the political compass test? Yes. So formerly I was reliably in the libertarian left. I haven't taken it recently. I would suspect that it's probably shifted a little bit rightward over right. the last year or so. But, uh, but yeah, I would just, I would expect that's the box in which you fit if you took the test, but I'm libertarian left. Yeah. Very solidly. So, but I find I have, essentially no trouble getting along with people over in libertarian right. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of values alignment. And yep. what there is is a disagreement over policy. But frankly, I don't think policies that are coming from the left or the right 
are coherent enough to function in the first place. So my basic mm -hmm. feeling is that all of us folks in those lower two boxes of the political compass test actually ought to give up on the sort of, you know, 18th century, 19th century notions that people have traditionally debated. And we actually have to think about, well, in, in the 21st century, what would a solution that that reaches the the values that we share look like? So yeah. um, my what puts me on the left is values. It is not a commitment to um, an ideology that has a name over on the left. I don't think any of those ideologies are, are going to function. So it's it's strictly a matter of values. I'm strongly committed to the idea that um, a fair world functions much better than a world in which there's um, systematic bias against some people. So that puts me far on the left. On the other hand, you know, does that mean I'm committed to affirmative action? No, I actually think affirmative action is a a broken policy that it actually creates so much harm that we need a deeper rethink. And so um, I am in pursuit of ideas, most of which do not yet have names, for how to accomplish what those of us in those lower two boxes would agree are desirable ends, um, but I am not committed to the things that drive people crazy over on the left. Sure. Take a super chat question here from Liberative. This kind of returns to advice for students, I suppose. Uh, is, is there a method for dejected students to get out of the collective hellhole Evergreen has become? What becomes of their programs and progress? So I interpret this to be a question about, like, if you're going to jump ship, if you're actually going to leave, uh, maybe not even just Evergreen, but any campus that might be similarly... Um, problematic to borrow their word let's put it that way if you've decided to jump ship what would be your advice to that person um that is a great question i think what i would say is this this is a terrible moment from the point of view of all of the structures that uh, all of the legacy structures are non-viable and therefore telling somebody to embrace one legacy structure because another one is um, in chaos isn't very useful. What I would say is this is a moment to recognize that nobody knows what even the near future is going to look like. In such a moment, what you want to do is invest in tools that are very val valuable, very versatile, and can be applied to a wide range of problems that we might face. And uh, I guess you have so many things coming together right now from um, an absolutely predatory lending apparatus, mm -hmm. um, driving students into debt increasingly to get an education that is being torn apart from the inside by postmodernists that want to um, deny reality. So there's an argument to be made for um, foregoing that debt. I hate as a college professor to make that argument to anybody because I'm a believer that education can be uh, one of the most liberating things around. But if your education is going to be indoctrination, don't go into debt for it. Yeah. Um, that doesn't make any sense. So I, I guess this does actually bring back up the question that you asked before about what's going to happen um, 
with this battle between the postmodernists and uh, science. And I told you that the answer was easy and I didn't deliver it. Um, so let oh, me go for take it. Yeah. A minute and do that. Yeah. Um, the postmodernists have a very strong hand inside of the academy. The academy mm -hmm. does not have a good immune system to fend it off. That means that science inside the academy is in jeopardy and it's going to become weak and fractured. Science, however, is valuable to lots of things that aren't directly connected to the academy. So what I would expect is maybe postmodernism wins the battle in the academy. Science reformulates outside of the academy because there will be science whether the postmodernists like it or not. And the academy will collapse because who's going to send their kid to a postmodern institution without a good scientific basis? Yeah. Okay. And I got one more question from uh, E.S. Asher. People are fascinated with uh, your views on politics, apparently. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I, but uh, we'll entertain them. Um, so do, you, you spoke a little bit about some of your dissatisfaction with policy proposals on the left and the right. Uh, E.S. Asher says, do you view um, current government behavior as the problem, or do you see the failure as being in the larger American governmental model? So... I guess another way of phrasing that is to what degree do you think like systemic reform is necessary or do you think the current system is a good system in which to work? Yeah, terrific. Um, let me put it this way. Uh, I'm a fan of the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that they built, they knew was broken at the beginning. I mean, we know that, for example, they knew that slavery was uh, a potentially union ending um, challenge, but they didn't know how to solve it. And so they kicked the can down the road. But I'm a fan of what they attempted to do. I believe that the consent of the governed is the, the height of, um, of governance and that we would be fools to abandon it. On the other hand, there are a lot of errors in the particular details of what they set up. A system that defaults to two parties is never going to be very effective. And what's more, um, in the 21st century, we have access to solutions that they had no way of intuiting. So what I would like to see is us rescue the basic structure, right, the values, and retool the apparatus so that it works. So, you know, I would say I'm a patriot. I, I believe in the nation. I am uh, committed to breaching every filter bubble and talking to people that I'm not supposed to get along with because I actually find those conversations are um, uh, res restore my faith in, in people. Um, but I'm not committed to keeping the institutions as they are. I think it's not surprising that 18th century solutions are inadequate to the 21st century, and I don't think we should be wedded to them as sacred. I think the founding fathers themselves, were they to look at our situation, would be urging us on to revolutionize their structure um, so that it can function. Hmm. Well, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is if you have any immediate future plans, maybe political science professor is, uh, <laughs> is, the, is the next calling. But I was curious, I know you guys, you had mentioned that you and your wife are in a state of uncertainty. Is there anything that you can announce? Like, is there anything that you can, any certainties that you can discuss? Or is this just wide open for the next, I don't know, X amount of months or even years? Well, this is a rough time for us. We have mm -hmm. two kids. Um, we've 
won a settlement from the college that's enough to to establish that we were right. Um, it's not enough to float us for the foreseeable future. It protects us for a couple of years if we stay right where we are. If we move to a place that's more expensive, it's not a couple of years. So we have mm -hmm. to find something and we have to do it pretty quickly. We are getting lots of invitations to interact with um, folks who are on the cutting edge of various uh, thought communities. And that's really exciting. Maybe it will produce an opportunity. I hope it does. Um, but I would say uh, this is a very odd moment. I mean, we're suddenly thrust out here and, um, you know, buying health care for the first time and who knows, you know, <laughs> maybe ever since we were students. Um, and so just even facing that is uh, an interesting challenge. I have the sense that something will likely emerge, but until we know what that thing is, um, it's it's a bit of a nervous time for us. All right. Well, I asked you for an hour and we're right about at that time. So um, uh, where would you like people to find you when you have these big announcements to make uh, so that they can take your online classes or they can, you know, they can find out what's going on in Brett Weinstein world? Well, probably the best way to do it is uh, on Twitter. Okay. At Brett Weinstein. Um, they can also sign up for the course at um, brettweinstein.net. And I'm on Patreon, uh, Brett Weinstein. Uh, and I'm on YouTube as The Evolutionist. Yes, I, I found the channel today. I actually subscribed today. I didn't know you were on YouTube until today. So get to work making me some videos. I want to I'm watch. still still getting used to being in front of the camera. It's not, not native to me. You know, it, uh, it never really gets normal. Uh, it, it never, it, it certainly feels awkward to start and it never really gets completely comfortable. It just gets less weird over well, that's time. Terrible news. That's awful. Yeah. Well, there's something about, you know, sitting in a room by yourself and looking into a camera, whichever one's on right now, I can't even tell, but looking into a camera and just talking to yourself by yourself. Uh, yeah, to the, to the, to an observer, it definitely looks weird, I guarantee, and to you, feels weird as well. Yes, so. All right. that, that is exactly the experience. So at least I'm doing it right. Yeah, correct, yeah. But anyway, that uh, that is my guest, Brett Weinstein. Brett, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to come on my channel and for making time for my audience. But more than that, I wanna say uh, thank you for being a steadfast defender of the search for truth, no matter where that leads us. I think the, uh, the silver lining in all of this craziness is that myself and others have found you uh, in this process. And I very much look forward to uh, seeing what the future has in store for you. I have a hunch it's going to be an upgrade. I think good things are coming for you. So uh, look forward to seeing them. And thanks to everyone for tuning in tonight. Really appreciate you guys. Have a great night. Thanks, Matt.